What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. On today's show, we're joined by Brenda Grisham, who is also the founder of the Christopher Lavelle Jones Foundation. I don't care if you get a check to do your work. If you kill somebody, you ain't no different than pooking them on the street. Because that's not your job to kill anybody. Your job is to make a difference. To, you know, keep our city safe. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Christopher Lavelle Jones was born in Oakland, California, August 25th, 1993. He received his early education in Oakland and Sacramento, California. Christopher attended American High School in Fremont and later attended East Oakland School of the Arts while he was an honor student. He was enrolled in Cal State East Bay Hayward at the time of his death. On New Year's Eve 2010, he became Oakland's 95th and final homicide victim of the year. He was killed at 6.30 p.m. December 31st, 2010, outside his mother's home near the Eastmont Town Center. Jones, his sister, and the others had eaten dinner and were on their way to see the father of the five-month-old grandchild. Police said at the time there was no reason for the ambush. Jones may have been mistaken for the wrong person. Christopher was a self-taught musician. He could play any instrument you placed in front of him. Christopher loved to sing and also wrote music. His birthday is tomorrow. He would have been 29 years old. We're joined this morning by his mother, Brenda Grisham, who is also the founder of the Christopher Lavelle Jones Foundation. Good morning, Brenda. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, now, Brenda, you and I met uh, in 2012, I believe, uh, in my capacity as an artist. I was part of a excuse me, production called Love Bomb for My Spirit Child. Yes. This project was developed and directed by a woman named Aria Julia Brown, and she worked with you, uh, Danica Chapman, mother of 19-year-old Kenneth Harding Jr., who was killed by San Francisco police over a muni ticket. Ayanna Davis, mother of 25-year-old son Katari Grant, who was killed uh, as a result of street violence outside of her home in August 2007. Uh, Anita Wills, grandmother of Carrie Baxter Jr., who was killed while he stood outside an Oakland church. Bonnie Johnson, the grandmother of Oscar, Johnson, uh, Oscar Grant, who was shot and killed by BART police in January of 2009. And Yasmin Flores, the mother of Daniel Booker, a 27-year-old shot in 2009 as he was walking out of a club. Uh, in addition to performances in the theater... We also did site-specific performances, which meant that I did a performance of your piece on the porch of your home where Christopher died. Uh, we're going to listen to that monologue uh, to get us started today. Okay. Christopher was a surprise, but I knew right away that he was going to be my special child. Christopher had a mind and a spirit of his own from birth. <laughs> well, Christopher was always a musician. Christopher began playing the drums when he was two. Christopher was born with a hearing loss. Yeah, so Christopher didn't really hear till he was about four. But in that, he learned to deal with vibrations. He used to be on my pots and my pans and my lampshades. And when he finally got his hearing, he was just all over the place. He began as a drummer. 
excellent drummer. Everybody sought after him from all around the Bay Area. When he turned 14, uh, he got up one Sunday because our musician didn't show up. So he said, well, Mama, you want me to play for you guys? And I said, on what? Chris had drums at home. He didn't have no piano or a keyboard, no organ. Never saw him touch it. He got on the organ and played everything rehearsed the day before, just like it is on the recording. From that day on, he became my musician. He played the piano, the organ, the keyboard, the drums, percussions. He wanted to play the bass guitar, but he never got to do that. But I'm sure he would have been good at that also. He was such a pleasant, well-mannered little boy. Can I carry your bag? Can I help you down the stairs? A part of so many people's lives. <laughs> oh, how the teachers loved you. Report cards always say outstanding behavior or a joy to have in my class. And I always had to come back and say, okay, so how is he doing in his schoolwork? Because his personality is not going to take care of him. You always seem to think somebody needed you. And you helped me at the choirs always. Well, Mama, that's not exactly how that goes. <laughs> You'd bellow out the parts and mumble the words every time. Senior orientation was a blast. You were a celebrity then and a bigger one now. I don't even introduce myself as Brenda anymore. I just call myself Chris Jones, Mom. When I called the school, the secretary said, Hi, Chris Jones, Mom. Even before I could say who I am, everyone to stop to shake your hand or get that Chris hug, which they still talk about. Birthdays with you and your sister are such a delight, with you captivating the crowd every time with some game or other in your room, folks on the bed, the floors, sitting on things that just were not meant to be sit on. Wipe away dead babies stillborn, tiny fingers and toes, worth more, worth more. Beating hearts, chubby cheeks, first steps in developing speech makes you forget about grief, still a part of me. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, 23 of my chromosomes, I pray he remembers. Mother's memory is awakened. Love trumps grief. And I want to shout out to the other actresses that took that journey with me, uh, Ayodele Nzinga, Lisa Evans, and Ana Maria Luera. <clears throat> Let's take a breath. Brenda, what was that? I, I mean, I, I can't think of a more personal, intimate, 
experience. And and right, this of course is only. I only know this through working with the mothers I work with. But losing your child, that's a pretty personal experience. What was that process like for you? Telling your story and then watching it being brought to life by basically a total stranger. <laughs> well, the one thing I did feel about it, um, they picked the perfect stranger. When somebody could make you feel your own story the way you made me feel my own story, that's perfection. The message that should have got out did because you played me. You told my story better than I could have told that piece because I'm his mama. So it would have came out different. But the key pieces, the key elements of who Christopher was, you portrayed him. Now you have me crying again. Uh, well, you had me crying, so we ain't gonna cry. Oh, all right. Um, well, I just, you know, was so gr- I, I, I'm just grateful for the honor. Uh, you know, that it was that an honor really for me. Did what I believe you. feet are supposed yeah. to do. Yeah. Then uh, that put us where we are today. It? Yep, and, and here we are, right? So now it's 2022, and you and I are still uh, rocking together, and I'm going to get into some details of that in a minute. Uh, okay. You you work with uh, many, many families that have lost their loved ones to street violence. Can you talk about how that trauma can manifest and the, what resources uh, may or actually may not uh, be available? Um, there are a lot of, we're going to start with the resources. There are a lot of resources, but the resources aren't for everyone. Every parent is at a different level in their trauma. Um, I tell a lot of parents, cause I, like you said, I deal with a lot of parents here all over. I can't tell you how you feel because that wasn't my child. My child's name was Christopher. I could tell you how I feel, how I get through it, but that might not work for you. Um, I try to tell them, you got to go at your own pace. Um, I was speaking to a parent this morning who was watching a piece in Sacramento. And when she posted it, you know, it was a bunch of different responses. She began to get angry. And I have to keep telling everybody don't understand. If you have never lost a child, you'll never understand. And the demographics of somebody killing your child, that's not the same as, your child getting killed in a car accident. Yeah, we mamas, we gonna feel that. But somebody took my son's life and he never did anything to anybody. And then I was standing right there. I tried to save my son. I wasn't able to. I tried to push him out of the way of gunfire. These kids had assault rifles. My daughter was shot as well. So she still carries the bullets. My children are traumatized. So far, and it's just not the families, it's the parents. I mean, it's the whole, it's not just the parents, it's the whole families that suffer behind this. And that process is long, very long. And the resources for that just really have to be rethought. And that's some of what you're trying to do with the Christopher Lavelle Jones Foundation is, is change. Uh, yeah. some of that. Um, can you talk a little bit about the foundation and the work that you do? Um, the foundation is all over the spectrum is what somebody told me the other day. Um, 
And I had to tell them, you can't win a game if you never get on the field. Either you're going to be in the middle playing all the positions or you're going to stand over there and say what hasn't been done. Um, we do a lot with families. We do a lot with non-families because um, last weekend, every year for the last um, nine years, we do a help the homeless all day. So my friends, we get together and we go from one end of Oakland to the other. The day Christopher died, he did three acts of kindness. And one of them was to help a homeless man at the gas station in Hayward at the Valero gas station. He went inside to pay for my gas and it was a homeless man sitting outside. And I saw him say something to the Chris, to Christopher and then he came back. So what happened? Oh mama, he said he was hungry. I'm gonna pump your gas and I'm gonna go back in and buy him a hot chocolate. He bought the man a hot chocolate, some Doritos and some gum. He said, cause mama, his breath was stinking. I said, you know what? I'm not about to play with you. Um, so we just do, you know, and I have a, also have another group within the foundation called Their Lives Matter, and we lobby um, because the foundation is a 501c3, and we're not supposed to lobby. So I create another um, organization, which we go to Washington, D.C., and speak with congressional leaders on um, gun laws. We all know gun laws ain't going to help us because Pookie and them ain't going to the store to buy a gun. They're not going to the store to buy no ammunition. But you have to help everybody in order for your mission to get across because one day it's going to be our turn. But if you ain't supporting nobody else, when you go up there to stand, you're going to be standing by yourself. You painted so, two portraits. Uh -huh. Oh, finish. No, finish. You finish. Go ahead. Um, I'm also the chair of the gun violence subcommittee for the VPC. Um, and in that, I work my, through my foundation with every single thing that I do um, because you have to lay a foundation in order to build a building. If you don't lay the foundation in every aspect of your work, you just spinning your wheels. I've been in this for 10 years. Chris will be, uh, it'll be 12 years in December. Um, and I've seen, I've heard, um, I'll partner with whoever. You trying to stop the gun violence? Okay, how are we going to do it together? And so through the foundation and my wonderful friends and my wonderful staff that I have, that, you know, I told them yesterday, I said, I'm going to have to kind of step down from all these little ideas because I just be coming up with stuff. Um, you know, in order to make a change, it takes a lot to transform something that's been there for a while. Guns that kill people, doesn't it doesn't matter who's holding the gun. It's the fact that the gun took somebody's life. And we can't keep playing those games that we aren't on the same team because we are. And through my foundation and the work that we do, which is, you know, really too much to talk about, that's my main focus. We all fight in the same fight. So if you fighting by yourself, you could go on and stand over there because I'm going to be with everybody that's trying to make a difference. And that's just me. And I, I want to get to that. That's a key piece of the conversation. But I, I want to go. I was struck by a sentence you, you said. You said, these kids had assault rifles. They did. They had altered assault Not rifles. These, right. But I'm stuck on these kids. These are yeah, children. And so you've got those kids, right, our babies that, that are expressing their trauma through the most extreme levels of violence. 
And then you've got young people like Christopher, who, as you said, performed three acts of kindness just on that one day and in and, and researching, you know, playing you and, and, and him. That that was a normal day. Right. <laughs> it was. <sighs> Why, from your perspective, mm-hmm. are so many of our babies falling through the cracks? Everything starts at home. And the one piece that we're missing, we're stepping in a position that somebody else already owns. Every person that takes a life, whether they be 40, 50, 60, they got parents. When I grew up, we did everything together. We had family, Monterey, every every weekend, we were a family unit. We had dinner at Big Mama House every Sunday. They drive us from Monterey, Pleasant, uh, Pacific Grove, or we'll go down there. It's none of that for a few key reasons. Parents nowadays are young enough to play on the playground with their children. So with that, if you never go, never had an adult life, how are you going to raise your child to be an adult? And then there's no support. There were over 73 shell cases in front of my house. And what, they weren't after anybody in my house. We just happened to be outside at the wrong time. That could have been anybody. If I would never have gotten off of my couch, I wouldn't be talking to you now because they blew out my whole front window. My daughter will never sit in the front of a window. She never sits in a living room that has a couch in front of a window. 12 years. Still won't do it. I won't have a, I don't have a couch in my house that's in front of a, that the back is in front of a window. One of the things I, 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 I say, and, and some others do, and, and you've heard me say it, is, is that all violence is state violence. And, and what I mean by that is the state creates the conditions that allows our children to fall through the cracks. The state right. creates conditions of poverty. Uh, we're not dealing with the PTSD our kids have from growing up in war zones. We're not right. providing them with a quality education. Uh, some of these kids are housing insecure, food insecure. Uh, you talked about families and parents, you know, post the, the war on drugs, which was really a war on black bodies. Thousands of folks have and continue to be funneled into prisons and jails, ripping families apart. I mean, there's so many things, right, that, that contribute right. Uh, right. To, to what I believe is an intentional uh, assault and and. and attempted demise uh, of black communities mm-hmm. it's got to feel overwhelming, right? Brenna, I mean, so uh, you talked is. about, you know, you sit on the Violence Prevention Committee in Oakland, and, and yes, you go mm-hmm. to Washington, but, like, you're not going to end hunger. You're not going to end homelessness. No. You know, no. there, there's so many pieces. How do you focus? Where do, where do you start, or is that why you do partner with so many people? Because you partner with the folks that deal with the hunger issue, the homeless issue, the education issue, folks like me uh, who deal with the, the police violence issue. Is that how it gets done, is building this broad-based coalition? Uh, yeah. <laughs> For me, I'm, you know, and then it's, it's another piece that I forgot. Um, my godmother passed away last year. Um, and I helped her start our human trafficking division, uh, a nonprofit. So I'm also in the human trafficking. Um, I sit on the uh, gender-based violence subcommittee for the VPC as well. Um, and in all of these aspects, I try to 
I'm the radical person. I'm kind of like you and all of this stuff. I like for people to be accountable for what they do. There's millions of dollars, billions that are put into the youth. With that being said, what y'all doing? It's not enough youth per the demographics of money and organizations out there that are being helped. It's not. If it was, we wouldn't have all this going on. We had a low spectrum for murders. We think we are at a high. Oh, no. There are cities that are at four and 500 murders right now, and we're not even at 100, and we think it's a state of emergency. And the key pieces is the people that are getting paid to do the work need to be held accountable. We ain't just talking about the police. Everybody has a downfall. It's good. It's bad. Everybody needs help. But if I'm sitting there looking at you and you telling me it's 50 girls out here on the street and I'm on these corners every single day and I ain't never seen you, you can't tell me nothing. When y'all come? Because I'll be at my office till 8 o'clock at night. When do you come? I see the same five young ladies standing out there all the time. They've been out there naked. Where they mamas at? We stepping in the positions that really don't belong to us, but if we don't never engage in the issues of our city, and it's not just our city, we'll never get anything done. And we don't engage in our city's issues as much as we engage in other states' issues. Something happens somewhere else. We in the uproar. Okay, well, that happened last night on the street over here. A young lady got shot right outside my office yesterday. Six shots. What happened? I mean, we, we didn't hear nothing about it. We this. don't hear nothing about it. We don't hear nothing about it. It's like I the lives of those black shots. Every one of them. This last bout of us rocking together uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, was really generated uh, because there was an attempt at division. There was an attempt to say to families that this group, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Families that lost their loved ones to police violence. Don't care about this group. Families that lost their loved ones to street violence. Or families who lost their loved ones to street violence don't care about loved ones that lose their life to, to police violence. And, and you and I got on the phone and we checked our notes and said, well, well that's actually uh, absolutely not true. Right. Um, and it's hard to work your way through trauma to unity. And so we... Uh, we did a, a, a session at your annual conference that brought these families together. Um, and I'd just like to spend a, 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 <laughs> yes, and we are doing it again. Uh, I'd like you to talk though from your perspective, right? Like where, where are the difficulties in bridging those gaps? And then what is the common ground that is helping us walk a pathway to unity? Um, the division I see in both of the losses is the fact that they're not a common ground in the eyes of the communities, the state. There's there's a difference. Um, and so we as a people feed on the difference. The families that have lost their children to street violence feel that it's more publicity on families that have lost their children to police. And it's just played that way. In the session that we had, I heard so many good things about it. I mean, they kind of, my parents that I sent in there, they came out with a new understanding of 
how parents on that spectrum feels. Well, we all feel the same way, but I see what they're talking about. I see the difference, but how do we fix it? And we stay, we're taking the first step because there's some understanding here. And these parents have been, you know, talking to other parents about the difference. That's not really a difference. We the same people fighting the same thing. It don't, I don't care if you get a check to do your work. If you kill somebody, you ain't no different than pooking them on the street. Because that's not your job to kill anybody. Your job is to make a difference. To, you know, keep our city safe. But if you maliciously kill somebody without a second thought, that's that's right. And that's anybody. I don't make a difference. A murderer is a murderer, period. And they enjoyed the sessions. I had a a father that asked if they could do one, and we could do one for fathers. Because they were talking about the session out in the parking lot. He's like, well, we wasn't a part of it. Well, can y'all do a session for fathers this year? And yeah, we don't do that. Because fathers agree to. We're doing two sessions. And we can't keep forgetting That's it. Right. Brenda, I, I know you to be a Christian woman. Uh, so I, maybe I know the answer to this question. Um, but I've read about and I've heard you talk about forgiving the people who killed your son. How? Yes. First of all, they weren't after my son. We just have to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Misguided as they may have been. It doesn't make a difference. They were after somebody's child. Forgiveness is something that will haunt them. I publicly said it. I was brought up, I've been at the same church for 57 years. Same church for 57 years. My grandparents, always my mom told us, you live and you got to die. Nobody said how, the Bible doesn't say how you're going to die, but we all got to leave here at some point in time in some fashion for me to harbor hate for those young men wouldn't be Christopher's mama because Christopher gave everybody for everything I mean nobody did wrong in his eyes so I have to be the same kind of person and grow up to be like my 17 year old when he left here I'm not a perfect parent there's no perfect parents I made mistakes in raising my children but I tried my best to put them in the right path. And we all know you can do your best, but them streets ain't trying to give your kids back. So if you let, if you let them be out there, you have to understand you might suffer the consequences. Um, on tomorrow evening, I'll be speaking for ceasefire. It's Christopher's birthday. Huh? So I'm going to go into a room of young people that are at high risk for either being killed or killing somebody and speak to them on the anniversary of my murdered son's birthday, his 29th birthday. And I'm going to do that. She was like, well, I could change. No, you don't change the date. That's the perfect thing for me to do. And I've you never cease to, to amaze me. Just, <laughs> just never. Uh, so tomorrow is Christopher's birthday. Uh, talk yes. about what else you were doing during the day and uh, about Bay Area Gun Violence Awareness Day. Well, Bay Area Gun Violence Day is something I made up, <laughs> which I do so often. Um, I always have a vision for his birthday um, because he touches so many people's lives. Um, and so I had made these shirts that said, together we can end gun violence. Um, Biden signed over into law a, you know, phenomenal bill. Um, it doesn't help us, but still you have to support what you have to support. And so I made these bright orange T-shirts 
And, you know, they say what they say. And so tomorrow it's going to be Gun Violence Awareness Day where my flood, my timeline is going to be flooded with people in these orange shirts, including the uh, chief of police. He has a shirt. Um, his whole executive staff have shirts, so they're going to be in their shirts. And, you know, he done got him some orange and white Air Maxes, and Nancy O'Malley has her shirt. And, you know, we all going to do what we have. Uh, rapper friends that are going to be wearing these shirts and we're going to, you know, it's a visual thing for everything. So visually we're going to have these words that say together. That's the most important part. Together we can end gun violence. Um, we're going to have dominoes and we got Jenga and Uno and Monopoly and we're going to eat and, you know, just hang out and celebrate Christopher's birthday on tomorrow at the center. Yeah, you bring people together for sure, because I'll be there, too, with them <laughs> folks. With them folks, Brenda. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Wearing my shirt, which which does, it is bright orange, and it says, together we can end gun violence. They're going to see it's coming and going. <laughs> <laughs> Brenda, if people want to learn more about uh, your work, where where can they go? Or if they want to offer support, where where, where should they find you? www.cljfoundation.com. All right, Brenda. Well, I will see you tomorrow, and thank you so much for joining us this morning. I look forward to it. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about our topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis. That's D-I-S. And subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. Thank you.